thinking about um, Lake Oconee Presbyterian Church's place in this area, about our our place in the overall kingdom and, and what is God doing with us and in us. And so what you'll tend to notice is that I'm not going to be praying a lot for individual prayer needs. There are lots of those. I mean, I'm looking out at all of you, and no doubt all of you have something that we can be praying about and praying for. Um, you may or may not know, about 8.30 on Sunday morning, um, elders and other men in the congregation are gathering together back in the office, and we are praying individually, specifically for you and for various needs in the, in the body of Christ here. But in this prayer, what we're thinking about is we're thinking about the bigger kingdom purpose for which we exist and are a part of. And so that's what we're going to be doing largely when we come together for this pastoral prayer. Okay? So I want you to join me as we pray together. Our gracious God, we would pause right now to come before you, our maker, our creator, the one that has created us with a wonderful purpose in mind, and that is that we would worship you and bring glory to you in all of life, and then that we would enjoy this life in which you've given to us. And so, Father, as we come this morning, as we think on that, as we are reminded both in hymn and in prayer and the word that has been read and as we've recited it together, what a loving God you are. What an amazing God that you promise us in the word that you will always be with us. You will never leave nor forsake your people. And for you have created us. You, you tell us in the word that you are building us together as living stones. Jesus, your son, said that he would build his church and the gates of hell would not prevail against it. And so, Father, this morning we want to pray along those lines. Continue to build us. Continue to unify us. Father, as we find our voice, each of us individually in the life of this congregation, Father, would we meld together, fit together in a way that brings honor and glory to you and in a way which is good for us, edifying for each of the parts of this body. Father, we want that, and we would eagerly this morning pray for unity amongst us as we fit together, as we work together, as we live life together. Father, as we go through trials and temptations together, as we share our sin with one another. Father, as we encounter difficulties in our relationships, Father, would we learn through humility that the gospel brings to us to work with each other, to pray for one another, and to seek the unity for which Jesus prayed for. Father, we would pray for our place here in Greene County and Putnam County. Father, we pray that you would continue to give us a voice, that you would allow us to bear the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ to the men and women, boys and girls, every one of them in these counties. Father, in, in that endeavor, we pray for our relationship with our sister churches. That, Father, we would be able to join forces with them, that we would be communicating the same gospel of Jesus Christ, the same love, the same passion, that, Father, all of us would be driving towards the goal of seeing your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We would be praying for the coming of your Son, 
the ushering in of a time when there are no more sadness, nor tears, nor strife. And so, Father, we pray. We pray for those churches this morning and their proclamation of the gospel. That, Father, men and women would hear it. They would be reminded of their having been liberated from the tyranny of death and sin. Father, we pray that that gospel, that liberating gospel, would be that which unites us. It would be the main thing before us as we go as to our neighbor, to our friends, to our co-workers, to share the gospel. Father, there are this morning many, many needs here. There are many things that would keep us from that love, that passion, that would keep us from sharing that gospel. And so we pray for them. Lord, we pray for the wounds in our bodies. Father, for the difficulties that are being experienced. We pray for the souls that are hurting. Father, for the depressions that are here among us. Father, for the struggles and the addictions of our hearts. Father, would all of those um, not be things that would prohibit us from sharing, but those things which would propel us out into the world around us, knowing, Father, that you overcome even those things. And there are joys as well. We would praise you and thank you for the birth of Eleanor Michelle Rocker. We pray for Tara, for Walt, for their family. Lord, we give you praise for life. And we know that it is an amazing and wonderful gift. And so we share in rejoicing with them. Father, we are thankful for the ways in which you love us and show that love to us. Father, we would pray for Jack Oxford and for his family in their time of loss. Lord, these are representatives of, of the things that are taking place in our body and our life right here in this church. And so we would pray that you would comfort them with your amazing comfort, that which you promised to give to us. Holy Spirit, be their aid and their guide in their time of loss. Father, we thank you this morning for the word. Father, we thank you that we don't have to rely upon our own wisdom, our own devices, but that you give to us your wisdom, your way. And so this morning, help us to understand it and that we may give you glory in everything. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, because I'm not used to this, I'm going to have to walk back here and get my Bible. Will you pardon me for a second? And I invite you, if you have your Bibles, to turn with me to John chapter 4. My plan here is to do, um, I don't know, four or five sermons to get us up through the installation service in September, at which time we'll uh, begin um, some sort of series, and that is yet to be determined, and I'm kind of discussing some of that with the elders and with other folks here in the congregation, but uh, we'll let you know as soon as we know where we'll be headed. But until then, we're going to be taking um, some short passages, and we're going to be looking at them, things that perhaps are passions of mine, or as I look out and as I meet you, as I hear your stories, things perhaps that come into my heart and mind that I think maybe would be good for us. This morning is one of those passages, and we're going to look at John chapter 4, 
And, uh, and a story that may be familiar with you. It's a story of the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman at the well. So, with your copy of God's Word, let's read together God's Word. John 4, beginning in verse 1. The Pharisees heard that Jesus was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. When the Lord learned of this, he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now, he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sishar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with with Samaritans. And Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his flocks and herds? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. And he told her, Go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. And Jesus said to her, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you've had five husbands, and the man that you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. And Jesus declared, Believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is a spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. And the woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. And when he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. This morning as we come to it, we pray that our meditations upon it and the words of my lips concerning it would be acceptable in your sight. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So we're going to talk about the story this morning, and we're going to do it under three parts as we talk about the living water uh, that is offered to us and the Savior, the gracious Savior that offers it. First, we're going to talk about the free offer. We're going to talk about this living water's free offer. The second thing that we're going to talk about is its life-giving ability. And the third thing is its revealing power. So let's talk about its free offer that you see here. This is an interesting story that John is telling to us. And John has is, is really set this up quite nicely because in John chapter 3, he tells us a different story. A story about another close encounter that Jesus has. This time, the encounter that Jesus had is with a man named Nicodemus. Now, Nicodemus was of the religious elite, if you will. He was a Pharisee. He was a religious leader. And the story is that he came to talk to Jesus at night, under the cover of darkness, so that he probably wouldn't have been noticed or seen having this conversation, going to this this uh, new rabbi that was on the, on the scene. And so Nicodemus goes, and he has this discussion with Jesus. Now, that story occurs in John 3. Then we move to John chapter 4. We have a completely, totally different scenario. We don't have someone who is the religious upper class. We have someone who is the religious lower class. John tells us a story about Jesus and his encounter with this first woman, second Samaritan woman, third divorcee living with a man woman. That's who John tells us about this encounter that Jesus now has in John chapter 4. The stories couldn't be further apart. You, You couldn't tell two stories about two encounters that were any more different than these two stories are. And so it seems that what John is doing is he's drawing us in and he's telling us something about the nature of Jesus' ministry. And the nature of Jesus' ministry is, as he offers the gospel, is that it is a free offer to everyone. He, He excludes absolutely no one. And the way in which Jesus deals with these two people, both Nicodemus and now the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman at the well, is really instructive. Because if you go back and you look at the encounter that Jesus has with Nicodemus, one of the things that you'll notice right away is, foul! He hits Nicodemus hard and fast. What does he say to him? Right out of the gate he says, you must be born again. It it sets Nicodemus back on his heels. Me? If he even got it, he was it was he didn't get it. But had he gotten it right away, it would have it was an astonishing comment. He's the re, he is a religious a Pharisee in those days. Well, they were quite righteous. These were good folks. I've always said that these are the kind of this is the kind of guy you want as your neighbor, right? I mean, he brings his garbage can up immediately after the garbage truck uh, empties it. He's a good guy, an all-around good guy. Just a a solid individual. And Jesus tells him he needs a new birth. Jesus tells him he needs a new beginning. Then you get to John chapter 4, and Jesus has a conversation, which, by the way, is the longest recorded interaction of Jesus with a singular individual in the Bible. And she is at the bottom of the heap. 
religiously and socially. Now, we know this because, and a number of commentators have pointed this out, we know that she's at the bottom of the heap because John gives us just a few little details that help us understand. What does he tell us? When do they meet? Well, they meet at the sixth hour. So, depending on who you read and, and how it's calculated, that was either noon or it was late in the afternoon. The point is, it wasn't the regular hour for going to the well. It wasn't the normal time of day. The normal time of day would have been in the morning when all of the ladies would have gathered together and they would have gone down to the well and they would have drawn their water and they would have had a little time together at the well without their husbands. They would have been sharing a little bit of information about what's going on in town. They didn't have telephones, okay? It was a social time. This time to go to the well was a a time of social interaction. And and so all of these women would have gone, they would have traipsed down to the well at generally the same time. They would have drawn their water together for the day's activities, all of the chores and everything that would have needed to be done, and then they would have gone back. Ah, why wasn't she with them? Why didn't she go in the morning like everyone else? And most commentators seem to think that the reason she didn't go with everyone else is because everyone else knew what kind of a person she was. Hmm. She wasn't welcomed. She was a social outcast. She was, as folks say, an outsider. She was an outsider not just because of her lifestyle, because of what she was pursuing, and we'll talk more about that in a minute. She was an outsider because she was a Samaritan at this point, with Jesus. She's an outsider because Samaritans had taken a little bit of paganism and a little bit of, um, of uh, um, their you know, Jewish theology and they'd taken those two things and they had melded them together and they'd made their own mix. And so she had a little bit of both in her. A little bit of both of those things. Both of, both of those outside qualities. I don't know what's getting me. Is it me? All right. We'll do better. So, so this is the woman that Jesus is encountering at the well. Now, I didn't do anything, Rush. Let's see. Got it. I don't know. Mike. Okay. So. Here we have Jesus meeting up with this woman at the well. They're talking. They have this long conversation that's going on and on into a myriad of, of places and areas as they start talking. And, um, and one of the things that I want you to notice is as Jesus engages this woman, he's breaking all of the cultural barriers, okay? So he's having a conversation with a woman, which normally wouldn't have happened outside of her husband having been there. He's having a conversation with a Samaritan. If you'll notice at the beginning, we, we get this indication that they, they are headed from, uh, Jude, from Judea to Galilee. The normal route would not have been to have gone through Samaria for a Jew. They would have gone around. But we read here that they, they went through town. And, uh, and, and they went through Samaria. And, and it was a setup. It was designed by God, if you will, for this to happen. So 
Then, while there, Jesus asks this Samaritan woman for a drink from her vessel. Highly unusual. So Jesus is breaking all kinds of social norms, all kinds of social barriers, as he has this interaction with the woman at the well. All of it leading up, of course, to him making an amazing offer to her. And the offer is, obviously, for a water that is living. He describes his... He describes what he has to offer in verse 10. You'll see it there. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God. That's a description of what he is going to offer. What Jesus is going to offer is a gift. A free gift. He also describes it as living water. Now let me ask you a question. We're talking about the free offer of the gospel. Let me ask a question to you. If you were to go out and you were, to, uh, you, were, you were going to earn a wage, what is it that would keep you from receiving the wage? A failure to work. If you are going to go out and someone's going to offer to you a gift, what is it that's going to keep you from receiving a gift? The only real thing that keeps you from receiving a gift is pride. Now, let me explain that, okay? If somebody, if somebody wants to offer me season tickets to the Auburn football um, games, that's one thing. I'll receive that. But if someone comes and they're offering to me a gift, perhaps some services, some help, some assistance, that kind of gift is difficult, more difficult to receive. Let me explain it this way. We've been, we've been in the process of moving, so we got all of our household goods over here. I went back to uh, Jackson and to Yazoo City in order to do some guard work, but as I finished those drills during the day, I was driving up to Yazoo City to work on our house in the evening. We're doing some painting, freshening things up, getting the house really looking nice so that it sells quickly. I hope. And I hope you're praying that it sells quickly. So I called a couple of folks. The folks knew I was there. And, and, I, and I called one of my uh, former elders. And I just said, hey, Steve, I'm going up to the house. And, and I'd love for you to join me if you would. And, and uh, maybe come up and do, you know, I'm going to paint and stuff. Oh, I'd love to. He had said, he had indicated that he wanted to help. And so Steve came up and we did some painting. And, um, and we got a lot done. And the next day, the next morning, he calls and he says, hey, uh, where's the key to the house? I think Wendy and I are going to go up and just finish a little touch-up paint. And I said, oh, sure. The key's under the mat. So they went up. And um, when I talked to him later, I, he said, uh, I said, how'd it go? And he said, it went well. We got everything touched up. And then Wendy went around the house and she went into all the rooms, and there were little things left here and there. And there was one room in particular in which a number of things had been left. And she took all of those, and she boxed them up. And then she went downstairs into the kitchen, and there was some silverware, and there was some dishes. And so she wrapped all those up. She took all of them. There's three or four boxes that she put together in the middle, middle of the living room. Yeah. There was an agony in my heart that Steve and Wendy had gone up to my house, gone into my house, 
painted first. That was okay. That was kind of difficult that I wasn't there painting with them. But it was really difficult to accept that Wendy had gone into the house and started boxing up stuff that had been left behind. What a sweet thing to do, wasn't it? It was really generous. She gave her time, her energy. She helped me out tremendously. But you know what? Had she asked me if she could have done it, you know what I would have said? No. You know why? Because I can do it for myself. And her doing it for me just made me feel terrible as if I should have already done it. Why are you doing it for me? And that's that pride that's welling up within me. And so the thing that keeps us from receiving a gift is that kind of pride. Jesus describes it here. What He is offering to the woman at the well, He describes it as a gift. And the only thing that will keep us from that gift is our pride. Here's what I want you to walk away this free offer that Jesus is giving. The takeaway here is that salvation begins with humility. Salvation begins with humility. It begins with humbling ourselves and hearing the gospel and receiving that free gift that Jesus gives to us. But here's, here's another point. Because a lot of you are here this morning, you've professed faith in Jesus, you've received that gift, and, and it began with humility, but here's the thing. The Christian life doesn't stop being humble with our reception of the free offer of the gospel. You never, ever, ever get away from that humility that first brought you to Him. The Apostle Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 2 that our attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made Himself lower, taking on the form of a man and being found in human likeness. You see, Jesus' entire existence as He walked as a man like us on this planet was one of humility. And we walk after Him in His steps. So the first thing there is this free offer. As Jesus is going out, as He's offering the Gospel, as He offers it to Nicodemus, and now as He offers it to this woman at the well, it's free. There's nothing that is going to inhibit it from going out to anyone and everyone. No matter the status, no matter the class, up here, down here, all around, it makes no difference. And we see that here in John 3 and now John 4. Here's the second thing. I want you to see its life-giving ability. It's life-giving ability. In verse 10, there is the free offer of living water. Now, there's some confusion as she hears Jesus offer her living water. In verse 11, she says, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. How can you get this living water? Now, in verse 12, she seems to be thinking, okay, she's looking at Jesus. He doesn't have anything to draw water out of the well with. And so she, thinking about this well... And knowing the history of this well, what does she now say to him in verse 12? In verse 12, she now says, You know, this is Jacob's well. Jacob drew water from this well, and Jacob's sons drew water from this well, and Jacob's livestock was water from this well, and a lot of people since then have been watered from this well. You mean your water? Whatever water that is, because you can't draw any. The water you're giving 
is better than the water that Jacob's well gives to us? And what is Jesus saying to her? Yes. Verse 13. Everyone who drinks water, this water, from this well will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Now listen, we get it. She had a little harder, a little harder time understanding what it was exactly that Jesus was trying to communicate to her. She will eventually get it, just as Nicodemus apparently eventually got it. She will get it. But she doesn't get it right here just yet. And so we know that Jesus is obviously talking about the gospel. And, and, the, and the thirst that he is referring to is this void that is in us. It's this void that we have when the gospel is not present in us. And every single one of us has that void until we come to faith in Christ. You can think of it this way. Think of it as that... that uh, Encounter the things that happen in the Wizard of Oz, right? In the Wizard of Oz, you have Dorothy making the trek to the, the city with her friends, all of whom are in need. The lion in need of courage. The tin man in need of a heart. The scarecrow in need of a brain. They're in need of something that would complete them, that would make them everything they needed to be in, in, in life so that they could experience greater joy Right? The lion is a lion. The tin man is a, is a tin man, a force to be reckoned with. And the scarecrow is a scarecrow. But they were all missing something. And Jesus is telling the woman at the well, He's telling us, that without Him, without the water that He offers to us, we're missing. We're missing out on life. Life as God intended it for us to be lived. Now, here's the big question. How is the gospel life-giving? Right? So we get, we get the lion needing courage. We get the tin man needing a heart. We get the scarecrow needing a brain. Now the question is, okay, well, how exactly is this water, this gospel that Jesus offers us, how is it life-giving? And here is how... It is. Obviously, it's life-giving in the sense that we gain eternal life, we gain heaven, yes, but it's also life-giving in this respect. The woman at the well had an entire host of issues. Jesus puts his finger right on them, doesn't he? He tells her, listen, I want you to go get your husband. He knew exactly what he was doing, and she says, "Um, I don't have a husband. He says, you're right, you had five, and the man that you're living with isn't currently your husband. Now, that's her issue. As Jim Gaffigan says, we all have a McDonald's in our life, okay? Meaning, there's something bad that we're all struggling with. For some people, it's McDonald's. For other people, it's five husbands. For other people, it's whatever. You name it. We're all thirsty. Here's what's taking place. John Calvin said, our hearts are idle factories. That is, we're always in search of something in our lives to complete us. We're looking for that thing that is going to give us a good picture of life, that is going to make life recognizable for us and give us joy and satisfaction in living. I mean, just think of our first 
our first catechism question. What is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Well, if the Bible is teaching us that joy is a part of living and it, and it comes primarily through relationship with God, okay, we want that. The problem with us is we're searching for it in other places. And Jesus just happens to put His finger right on her place. It wasn't an accident. He knew. He knew that she was looking for that piece of the puzzle in relationships with men. We've all looked for it somewhere. And sometimes stray into looking for it even now. We maybe think we'll find it in a bottle. Maybe we'll find it on the golf course. Maybe it's there waiting for us on the lake in some little cove with a fishing pole in our hand. Maybe it's in our grandchildren. Maybe it's in a relationship. We're looking for it somewhere. Yesterday there was a great article in the Washington Post online. Divine, right? Okay? When you're, when you're a preacher and, a, and an article shows up and you read it on Saturday and it, and it came out that day, you know it's for you. The title of the article is, it was in the Washington Post online, Once Sustained Happiness, Get Religion. That was the title. And when you delve into it, the article was about a study that was done by researchers in both London and the Netherlands. And what they did is they went out and they looked at 9,000 Europeans, most of them over the age of 50. And what they discovered was, guess what? Those who had the greatest satisfaction in living. Now, I realize this is is a study that was done. It's not biblical. It's not the end-all, be-all. But isn't it fascinating that what they discovered out of those 9,000 people were that those who had a a vested interest in their religious affiliation were happier. Dig down into that study a little bit further and what you find out is a majority of those people who describe themselves, their lives as fulfilled and they describe themselves as being happy with life, it was Christianity. See, even the researchers go out and discover what Jesus is telling the woman at the well, and that is, your life won't be complete until you have the water that I offer. And the water that I offer to you is the good news. The gospel is the missing link. It's the missing link that properly orients us towards God and each other. It orients us towards God correctly, and it orients us towards one another correctly, thereby giving us life that is joyfully lived. It allows us, if you will, to live life under the sun. The writer of Ecclesiastes tells us that life under the sun is meaningless. It gives us the ability to live life under the sun with great meaning. Here's the final point, and that is, I want you to notice it's revealing power. The the living water from a gracious Savior has a revealing quality to it. And Jesus puts His finger right on the thing that she believes will bring her life. She believed that this, this relationship series that she had with men would bring her life. But Jesus puts His finger on it. How does she respond? I want you to see it. Verse 19. And verse 19 now... 
one author noted, you've got to do something here because this is a strange little turn that takes. Because in verse 18, look what happens. In verse 18, Jesus points it out. He tells her exactly what's been going on in her life. He says, the fact is you've had five husbands and the man that you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Verse 19, sir, I can see that you are a prophet. What in the world is going on? What kind of a twist is it? What kind of a change of the topic is that? Here's, here's what's taking place, I think. What's taking place is, is that she suddenly realizes she's in a conversation with a religious expert. So she sees him as a prophet. Prophets would come. Prophets would, would, would point out the, the sin. Prophets would, um, you know, make what was unclear clear, just as he had done to her. And her response to him is, oh, so let's talk about some religious things because I've got a lot of questions about religion. So let's go there because that's where I'm most comfortable. She's not comfortable talking about her five husbands and the man she's living with. But she is comfortable talking about, hey, you know, um, our father said we should worship over here. The Jews said we should worship over here. What do you think? What do you think about that? She's trying to, she's trying to relieve the pressure and get out of the conversation that Jesus has started with her. But he doesn't let her. He answers her question, and, and she responds to the question, and, and uh, verse 25, she says, I know that Messiah is coming. So maybe she still doesn't get it. She's still not understanding what's taking place. Jesus gives her this description. What he says is, those mountains will become meaningless and those temples will become meaningless all because you will be able to worship in spirit and in truth at the right time. Wow, that, that's amazing. That's, that's like three whole sermons right there. And so she acknowledges it's a very difficult thing to understand. She, she doesn't really understand how could it possibly be that those buildings and those places of worship could go away. And so she says, when the Messiah comes, he'll make it all clear. And then, of course, in verse 26, Jesus looks at her and what does he say? I am the Messiah. I am actually making it all clear right here, right now. And how is he making it clear to her? He's making it clear to her by pointing out her sin. He's making it clear by pointing out that area in her life where she had been seeking to quench her thirst for so long. And he's saying to her, I have a water that will replace it. Do you want some? I want to give you quickly three takeaways. Here's the first one. When Jesus comes along, when the Spirit comes and puts His finger on an issue in our lives, it is good to listen. It's good to listen. And here's why. Because, listen, at the well, when Jesus does this, it, there's no intention at all of embarrassing her. Instead, what does He want? He wants healing for her. Because the path to eternal life, the path to the good life, if you will, is through a confession of our sin. You have to get there. You have to go through that. 
And so Jesus is drawing out this major issue in his life, not to embarrass her, not to call her down. What an amazing way he does this. How gentle he is with her. Offering her the free gift of eternal life at the same time calling out her sin. But what do we think? Too often we think that exposing our sin, perhaps confessing our sin to to a small group or a, a group of men or a group of women that we're close to, perhaps letting them know our real struggle, who we really are. We think letting someone in and see, to see that is what kills us. When the Bible tells us, it's what heals us. It's what brings life to us. That's how twisted our logic is. Let me give you just a, a, a quick illustration of that. I just uh, One of the things that I did while I was gone was I went back to Missouri. There, on the calendar already had been a, a class reunion with a group of students that I went through youth group with early on in my high school days. And so I went back to Missouri. And no sooner did I get to this gathering than our old youth pastor starts telling a story about me. Unfortunately, there are many. But this one that he told was that he and his wife had just reached, he and, and Tammy had just recently gotten married. And he was telling us, he said, you know, we just, we were honeymooners still. And all of a sudden, one evening, we get this knock on the door. And I open the door, and it's Sam. And he's in tears, he's crying, he is, he is having a, a bad go of it. And, and here we are, newlyweds. And so he said, I opened the door and, and, and I looked at Sam and he's all crying and everything. I said, what's wrong? And he said, I don't even remember what the problem was. And I told him what the problem was. I remember it quite vividly. I had been watching TV and there was in the program a young boy who was having bloody noses. And as it turns out, he had leukemia. I had been having bloody noses. And so I went to Patrick's house and I was, I was, I was beside myself in panic mode because I'd been having bloody noses and I thought, what? That I had leukemia. And so Patrick says, you need to go back and tell your mom and dad and let them take you to the doctor. And I said, I can't do that because if I went to the doctor and he diagnosed me with leukemia, then what? I'd have leukemia. See? If we're exposed, then it'll mean we really are sinners. But Jesus is saying it's the path to healing. It's the path to a fullness in life. Because that stuff weighs you down. Those are the weights that keep us tied up. All right, quickly, here's the second takeaway that I would just tell you. The gospel is an equally an equal opportunity equalizer. Someone said the ground is level at the foot of the cross. Nicodemus, the woman at the well. Listen, the gospel comes to us all and it is the great equalizer. Because every one of us that walked through the doors this morning can do nothing but confess our sin and our need of a Savior. And what does that do to us? Look, I loved hearing some of the stories about you guys going up to New York City Phenomenal, great stuff, sharing the gospel. Listen, there is no greater tool in our lives to share the gospel than to have been humbled by the gospel first. The gospel is an equal opportunity equalizer. That's why you've got to meditate on it 
day and night. And here's the third thing. The Savior, Jesus, endured a great thirst. Go read the story on the cross. As Jesus hung there, what did He tell them? I'm thirsty. Jesus endured a great thirst on the cross that He might quench your thirst and mine. Friends, there is no greater hope than to know the forgiveness of sins. There is no greater hope in this life than to know that God smiles on you, not because of what you've done, but because of what He has done for you. Both in His death on the cross, paying the penalty for your sin, and in His living a righteous life, that righteousness then credited to your account. Do you want your thirst quenched? Do you want to know what it is to have that living spring welling up every single day in your life? The path to it is none other than the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for the good news, for the hope of the gospel announced to this woman at the well. What an amazing scene as our Savior taught us that there is no status that will keep us and keep the gospel away. Father, thank you. We pray this morning. First, if we don't know the gospel, Father, would you let it ring in our ears? Would you open hearts this morning? Second, for those of us that have confessed faith in Christ, Father, would you remind us of our need each and every day, our need of the blood of Christ and the righteousness of the Savior. And then, Father, would you quench our thirst? In Jesus' name, amen.